and good morning everyone or good evening or good afternoon depending upon which side of the planet can we have a side on a spherical world I don't know I never never researched that very deeply welcome to the other side of midnight that magical time between dusk and dawn when we used to discuss things that uh, you know people didn't do in polite society like uh, shadow people and UFOs and things that go bump in the night. We're just past Halloween, so I guess things that go bump in the night are, are still dairy gear. Anyway, as I've said countless times, and we'll probably say countless times at least through the end of this year, that special time of night when anything could happen is no longer limited to between dusk and dawn. I mean, if you've been looking at mainstream news, I don't care whether you're following Fox or CNN or MSNBC or the the um, movie channel. <laughs> it's all crazy. It's totally gone bonkers. And and last night we tried with um, Stephen and Georgia to delve into a bit of what's going to happen and this resonant synchronicity, which is driving things in a very curious direction. At Warp 9. So we won't belabor that. Tonight we're going to kind of pick up, uh, this is somewhat part two of our discussions with uh, Stephen Bassett last night. Because one of the real reasons that Stephen and I have been so adamant that we must have disclosure of the extraterrestrial intersection, interaction with the human species up to and including that phenomenon which is called UFOs and which probably somebody should come up with a, a better name someday, is because of the stunning technological advances that that disclosure process, that political process, will um, will make possible. And that is more than an act of faith, as you're going to hear tonight from my mystery guest, um, Sir Isaac Newton. Now, no, I don't have access to a time machine, and no, we haven't dragged poor Isaac up into the 21st century from where he was very happily ensconced uh, somewhere there in England. What we've done is we've got a uh, citizen scientist, a friend of mine. I've known him for many, 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 many years, and he's been doing deeper and deeper dives into some remarkable physics, what we're going to talk about tonight, which could wind up being the reason why this disclosure political process that Bassett and I and Georgia discussed last night is so crucial. It's not so much as you're going to hear that we don't know stuff. There's a tremendous amount of physics which is off the books, which is not in the textbooks, not being taught by mainstream academia, which is being really pursued aggressively and assiduously and relentlessly by a whole flotilla of citizen scientists. And you're going to hear about one of those guys tonight. His name was Kenneth Shoulders. And what they've discovered and been able to put to use and actually produce working hardware around is a revolution which in many directions is well overdue. Give you an example. Go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. And click on tonight's banner which has to do with um, uh, on the shoulders of giants. That's a very inconvoluted, is that a term? 
convoluted pun, as you'll see if you know any of your Newton. And we're going to talk about uh, this extraordinary physicist, Kenneth Shoulders, and what he discovered. And what he discovered when it's put to practical use, we're going to talk at great length about that in a few minutes, could cause the first item in, um, in our Radio with Pictures section. Remember, you go to the main page, click on tonight's banner for On the Shoulders of Giants. That will take you to the guest page. Uh, scroll down um, under uh, my little uh, promo there where it says Fast Links to Items. Click on me, Richard. That will take you to Radio with Pictures, item number one. The head of, the CEO of PG&E. Remember, these are the guys that everybody now in California loves to hate because what are they doing? They're turning off the power to millions of people on a semi-periodic basis now on the theory that if there's no high voltage flowing through those high-tension lines draped across the countryside for hundreds of miles when you have a big state like California, that when you have high winds, they won't swing back and forth causing sparks and the sparks won't cause fires and the forest fires won't turn into raging wildfires that have burned up a great deal of California this year alone. So if the research we're going to talk about in the next uh, couple, three hours is meaningfully produced in a marketable form, then what PG&E is charging an arm and a leg for and not providing service for, and I mean the reaction when he said that uh, struggling California residents whose houses had had power turned off to them shouldn't be complaining because they still have houses. I mean, that's, that's kind of tone deaf in the extreme. Well, if Dr. Shoulder's work is pursued the way it should be, the way many other discoveries should be, then the days of PG&E being able to turn off the power to anybody will be long gone. I mean, imagine a, a, a planet, imagine a country, imagine a state like California where instead of having millions of customers bereft of power whenever there's a, an environmental problem, you basically don't have any high-tension lines collect, uh, connecting millions of people because every home is its own power source. Every factory is its own power source. Every um, textile mill, every... Uh, you know, uh, car transportation uh, assembly plant. Every every industry becomes self-contained, which means, of course, in earthquakes, in huge storms, hurricanes, in fires, in all of these, you know, nature striking back, um, there would no longer be a human civilization against which to strike because it would be the ultimate of decentralization and democratization, which is part of what comes along if uh, the conversation we're going to have with Isaac in a couple of minutes uh, can be brought to fruition. And in fact, you're going to hear about a lot of people that are doing just that. The, the key missing ingredient here, and I'm going to talk with Isaac um, at some length about this, is why has it not been brought to market already? And that goes into partially why we had to conceal the real name of my guest tonight under a pseudonym, uh, 
Isaac Newton seemed appropriate, given that uh, Newton was the guy who said, if I have seen farther, it's because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. Item number two in Radio with Pictures under my items. Now, here we have a problem. We've got thousands of tons of nuclear waste that have been stored, hopefully away from any living human beings or other living creatures, for tens of thousands of years. That's the model. Until their so-called short-life, short half-life radioactivity diminishes to the point where they're no longer of a significant biological or medical concern. I said, remember, hundreds, tens of thousands of years, up to hundreds of thousands. Well, there's a Nobel laureate who just won the uh, Nobel Prize for Physics. I'll uh, I'll get you his name here. Um, It is Gerard Maru mentioned in his wide-ranging acceptance speech that lasers, if properly developed, could cut the lifespan of nuclear waste from millions of years down to about 30 minutes. And how is this magic accomplished? By simply chopping up the laser beams into picosecond, um, that's trillionths of a trillionth of a second uh, duration. And when a powerful laser beam is chopped to be uh, emitted in pulses of that length or that uh, non-length, very curious things happen. You're able, according to uh, uh, Maru, you're able to interfere by means of lasers with the energy levels of the nucleus of the atom itself. He says, for instance, he says, take a nucleus of an atom. It's made up of protons and neutrons. If we add or take away a neutron, it changes absolutely everything. It is no longer the same atom, and its properties will completely change. The lifespan of nuclear waste is thereby fundamentally changed, and by means of these lasers, we could cut this from a million years down to about 30 minutes. And, of course, that's theoretical. On the practical side, there actually is a technology that was demonstrated uh, many decades ago now on Good Morning America. Um to uh, the science editor of uh, uh, GMA, who many years ago also interviewed me on Good Morning America. His first name is Michael. I forget his last name. Dr. Michael something or other. Anyway, drifted into the um, mist of time. Anyway, um, he was testing something called the Patterson Power Cell, which um, was basically a cold fusion device We're going to talk about those this morning with Isaac as well. And as a very bizarre side effect, remember the the reason for creating cold fusion technologies was to basically create electricity from unlimited heat. And you can do that through many different ways, you know, a Stirling engine, an ordinary uh, Rankine cycle engine, you know, uh, basically, you know, heat to cold. You get energy, you wind up with rotation if you make it into a turbine that produces electricity. If you spin the right stuff, producing magnetic fields, sweeping over coils, producing voltage, that's how you can turn heat into electricity. 
it's done every day with coal plants and even nuclear power. It's, they're basically big steam engines. Anyway, um, coal fusion is supposed to do this in another way, but it produces heat. And so um, in this demo, one of the side effects of the energetic process, which at that time was a complete mystery and unknown, was that um, the heat-producing uh, process, the transmutation, the the magic, whatever it was, uh, was producing as a side effect a field that had the um, impact on fissile materials like uh, uranium-235 of knocking down their billions of years' half-life to about 20 minutes. And this was a demo done live on Good Morning America, ABC News, many, many years ago. And again, you wind up showing this stuff on national television. Everybody goes, oh, wowie, zowie. And nothing happens. How many times does this have to occur before somebody says, wait a minute, the fix may be in. Maybe the route to getting this stuff widely accepted and used is not the marketplace. Oh, horror of horrors. We live in a capitalist society. It's got No, it's got to be something more. It's got to be something like a NASA, which can supersede these fiefdoms and defy the marketplace and the censorship, etc., etc. By the way, Michael's last name was Gilliam. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Anyway, um, that brings me to my third item. Because maybe the route to the market is not through large corporations or large government institutions. Maybe it's a whole bunch of private, small entities which simply flood the market, like item number three. There's a, a flotilla upstairs of private satellites, some of them not any bigger than a loaf of bread, really, which are taking stunning images that are finding stunning acceptance in the marketplace down here where real-time satellite imagery of all kinds of things um, has a value. And so that's created a value of space corporation, which can put these spacecraft together, get them piggyback launch on other bigger missions that are taking much bigger satellites into orbit and have um, um, payload space left over. That's in fact – I mean you've heard me mention from time to time to time on this show that at some point we are going to launch our own spacecraft to go to the moon and to Mars and photograph the ruins there close up. Well, read carefully between the lines of item number three because this is in part how we're going to do it. It's just a matter of when. Which brings me to my guest this morning because we're going to talk about – dramatic technologies and innovations that are mind-boggling and only need to be replicated to the extent of creating some kind of commercial um, device, commercial technology, a commercial machine to take this over the top and to change the rest of the 21st century, if not far beyond. So, given that Isaac Newton is a pseudonym for my guest tonight, whose real name shall remain <clears throat> maybe as famous as the um, whistleblower, maybe Donald Trump will try to find the name of my secret guest tonight to pry out of him the secrets of, of uh, exotic 
electrical clusters, etc. Anyway, at the age of seven, my guest became interested in space, exotic technologies, extraterrestrial life, after watching an episode of Star Trek from the original series. Well, who hasn't done that? Intensely studied, uh, he, he turned to the UFO phenomenon throughout his teenage years, inspired by experiences of friends, family members, and acquaintances who um, apparently had a listing of sightings that inspired him. Eventually, he discovered Coast to Coast AM, and he heard yours truly, talking about the face on Mars and other anomalies that now are occurring with rather, you know, boring periodicity and, and frequency throughout the entire solar system. Sorry about that. Again, there's this huge weight of evidence just waiting to be born. This inspired my secret guest to comb through images from, among other things, the current mission at the time, which was Mars Global Surveyor. Throughout his 20s and early 30s, my mystery guest researched a wide variety of exotic energy and propulsion technologies, including, but not limited to, Brown's gas, magnetic motors, solid-state over unity transformers, noble gas engines, coal fusion, or L-E-N-R, which is an acronym standing for low-energy nuclear reactions, as well as the Byfield-Brown effect, and many, many others. In recent years, he became fascinated with the research of Kenneth Shoulders into something called exotic vacuum objects, better known for the rest of the evening as EVOs. This led him to recognize that the self-organizing plasma phenomenon, we're talking about electrical plasmas now, where you have a gas which is high enough in temperature to have electrons and nuclei floating around but not connected. It's overall charge neutral, but there's a lot of charges going on in the pockets of the plasma. And I might mention that the Russians have found that uh, where you have plasmas, you have intensely interactive torsion fields. So we're going to talk about torsion fields in addition to EBOs as the morning progresses. Anyway, this led my mystery guest to recognize that self-organizing plasmas, referred to by many different names over the past century, is at the root of virtually every exotic energy technology and potentially the key to understanding and back-engineering UFO technology. So without further ado, let us introduce my mystery guest tonight, Isaac Newton. Good morning, Isaac. Hello, Richard. (laughs) Hello, Richard. Oh, you're sounding spry for several hundred years old. (laughs) Well, this is my favorite time of day, Um, late at night. I'm the most aware this time of night. Well, that's obviously a lot of us, including the people who listen to this show. So you got into this whole exotic technological trip. At a very early – what was it back at the age of seven that triggered – I mean, at seven, I don't think I was doing anything like this. Well, um, I remember the day my father um, came into the living room. I had been watching cartoons, probably He-Man or something, and my dad said, I want you to watch something. And I said, no, I want to watch cartoons. 
no, you got to watch this. So he almost literally had to drag me to his bedroom. He sat me in front of this little black and white TV, and I watched an episode of Star Trek, the original series. Um, it was the episode titled A City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, my God, my favorite. Ah. It is. It's. It was awesome. And um, I just became enthralled. I had never had the concept of extraterrestrial life. Um, you know, radical space exploration, other civilizations. I've never had that cross my mind before. And to after say that, nothing I, of time travel. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Um, no, you picked a goodie. Your 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 daddy was a genius. That was the one to introduce you to this. Yes, obviously. And then after that, um, I just continued to you know, search for other programs and started reading everything I could. And then um, eventually my father told me about his two um, major sightings, which were probably alien abductions um, and the other instance that he witnessed with other people. And I just got more and more involved. Wow. It's early to start at seven to realize that the world around you when you're seven is not exactly you know, telling you how it really is, the truth. So how did how do things evolve? Uh, what was your first real, shall we say, alternate technological or scientific obsession? Well, I remember reading um, in Omni magazine. Good old um, Omni. About, yep. Um, my dad would always let me have one or two magazine subscriptions, and I always chose Omni. And um, I remember reading about cold fusion. And I remember um, after church on Sunday, my father um, talking to my Sunday school teacher about cold fusion on the steps of the church, because after church, everybody would just stand around and have long conversations forever, <laughs> it seemed like. Nobody wanted to leave the churchyard every Sunday, it seemed like. Um, and so I started studying that, and that you know led me to topics like the five-field brown effect that led me towards a number of different technologies. Um, and during my teenage years, I was probably more focused on UFOs than the exotic te technological aspect. You know, I filed Freedom Inf Information Act requests, and I um, read every UFO book I could find and so forth. But then um, probably my late teenage years, um, I started reading about co-fusion again and um, Pons and Fleischmann and all the different types of systems, and um, then as you know, time progressed, I just learned more and more. Let me let me kind of interrupt for one second because I want to ask a very very specific question. When you got into the whole Byfield Brown effect, first of all, describe for people who may not have heard the term uh, what it is, what it does, and how uh, Byfield and <coughs> Basically, it was Brown who discovered it. You know, he politically made a kind of a, you know, a match made in a physics lab with Byfield, a professor who knew Einstein, but it was really Brown who discovered this. Talk about what he discovered and why it's so amazing. And then I have a second question. Okay. Well, Townsend Brown, he discovered um, with his original systems that if you had a capacitor, and you had a very massive, heavy dielectric, and you had um, plates on either side, and you charged it with high-voltage electricity, 
there would be a net force produced that was completely unaccountable. Um, and he realized that if you did things such as pulse the voltage going in, the force would increase. If you made one plate smaller than the other to create an asymmetry, the force would be increased. If you used a higher um, K-value dielectric with a high, higher dielectric constant, that would increase the force produced. And um, his first devices were very heavy things, but they see, I really believe they were the most significant. Later on, um, he started utilizing. Wait, wait, wait. When when you say heavy things, I mean <clears throat> for people that didn't take electrical engineering in college, a a dielectric is simply a material that can store electricity. Yes, sir. It's it's kind of like a battery, but it's not because it'll release all that stored electricity in one flash when you close the circuit. And these are called capacitors because they have the capacity to store. An amount of uh, given amount of electricity depending upon the size, and so what Brown discovered was you take one of these and you hang it in the middle of a room from a wire, and you put a current through it so you charge it. It wants to move, right? Yes. Um, his when I said heavy, um, what I was trying to convey is that his original systems were very bulky. They had a lot of physical weight to them. Um, his later systems, for example, used um, air gaps as the dielectric with, for example, a positive pole that might consist of a loop of wire and a negative pole that might consist of a cone of um, aluminum, for example. Um, so his first systems um, were fundamentally different, although it was the same concept being used. Um, the later devices also produced more of what's called ionic wind, mm-hmm. which produced some of the thrust. Um, but his original systems, I believe the evidence is much greater that they produced thrust primarily through an anti-gravitational method rather than the later systems in which the ionic wind that was produced um, was responsible for most of the thrust produced. Yeah, but didn't he put those later uh, iterations, you know, the Mark II, Mark III, Mark IV, that kind of thing, into a vacuum chamber and found out that the ionic wind was not responsible really at all for the thrust that the, he observed? Um, he put a number of different devices in vacuum chambers, um, and he did claim that even with the later devices, if you could – um, achieve a high enough vacuum because weird things happen as you approach true vacuum. The conductivity of the atmosphere changes, and you can have shorts and um, different weird things can happen. But he did claim that at high vacuum, um, there it, with the later systems, there was still a um, you know thrust that remained after you eliminated the possibility mm-hmm. of ionic wind. He also tested them in oil. He tested them in other mediums. Um, he did a number of different tests, which proved there is a force that remains um, in addition to the ionic wind. Yeah, let me pick up on this after the break. We're coming up to a break here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, paradoxes, you know, abound coming up to a break at the bottom. <laughs> anyway, um, so we'll be back in a, in a couple of minutes. My guest this morning is Isaac Newton. No, it's not really Isaac Newton. This is a pseudonym because my guest tonight, 
um, just wants to be safe, a little safer than normally people worry about safety on this show, because the things he's going to talk about, which include anti-gravity, uh, unlimited energy from the field, all this good stuff, is not exactly designed to make friends and influence people in certain circles. So um, we're going by Isaac tonight. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. everyone on this Sunday night the 3rd of November you know one of the things I should have mentioned last night is that um, November 2nd was the anniversary and I actually have to get a calculator out here which I'm going to do so I give it to you exact 2019 72 years to the night last night that Howard Hughes flew the Spruce Goose for the first time. 72 years. That's part of the processional cycle. That means that in that amount of time, from the time he flew that airplane that was supposedly never supposed to fly 72 years ago, and last night, the Earth in its procession had moved literally through almost one full degree the stars are different tonight up there than they were 72 years ago when Howard Hughes flew the Spruce Goose so speaking of history um, Isaac let's bring you back in here's my question did you give me an answer to how heavy and big his original Brown's original uh, capacitors uh, were for his experiments? Um, some of them could be very bulky. Um, I'm guessing 10, 20, 30 pounds. I mean, they were big blocks. Sometimes he stacked the electrodes within blocks of the dielectric. So, I mean, they're bigger than a shoebox and probably <laughs> as heavy as if you filled it with rubber. Um, so they were huge things and they were optimized for the maximum thrust or maximum bifield brown effect. Mm -hmm. um, the later systems were not really um, maximized. He was actually, with his later systems, he was using the on ionic wind effect to his benefit. Well, let's because assume, let's just assume, and if you've got some numbers at your fingertips, that'd be very useful. Let's assume that we were to take one of those <clears throat> early bricks and they were, you know, what, roughly the size of maybe a couple, three bricks, that kind of thing. And we were to put them in a spacecraft. And we would arrange to have a power supply so they could be charged to high voltage and then discharged, right? And yes. the force appeared on the discharge, correct? Um, um, actually, the force you would... Um, the force was maximum when it was changing, but even um, when it was constant, a force still remained. I don't understand that. What do you mean? 
Okay, when you're charging up the capacitor, right. the force produced um, um, is greater. Um, after it stops changing and the capacitor is charged, mm -hmm. the amount of force will fade, but it will still be there without further charging it. Um, so the no, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that he would charge a capacitor. He'd have it sitting in a room motionless <clears throat> and just sitting there as a charged capacitor. It would want to move? Yes. I thought they only moved on the discharge or the charge cycle. Um, not um, his early gravitators. Um, they would continue to produce a force. There's actually a letter by him where he mentions this, um, where he described the test he performed where he had these heavy gravitators on a rotary axle and – after he um, charged them up, there would be a remaining force for a period of time. It would fade, but it was there. Hmm. Okay, well, this doesn't really undercut what I'm going to ask next, which is <clears throat> let's assume we take the most primitive of these devices and we put it in a uh, series of CubeSats, which weigh a lot more than 30 pounds, okay? Why hasn't someone in the private space business taken a Byfield Brown Electret or a very cum, you know, cumbersome, heavy, wax, multiple-layered capacitor, put it into a private spacecraft, provided it with a, 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 a electrical current source, and, and turned it on to see what's happened? That's a very good question. Um, I tend to think that the parties that try to go that route are eventually told quietly back off. Don't go there because this technology is already used um, by certain um, military contractors in their special access programs. Um, and all they have to do is make a very quiet threat to get someone to take another path of research. Hmm. But that's a supposition on your part. You don't know that for a fact, yes. right? I don't know that for a fact, but I given given that believe. through um, a number of people, um, oh, I'm trying to think. His first name is Steve. He's not the bastard. He's the other Steve. Um, someone will tell me who he is. We're talking about him here. He's a doctor, and he's been trying to make um, uh, uh, you know free energy devices. Steve Greer, thank you. That was Stephen Greer, yes. Yeah. He's been trying to market free energy devices for uh, a couple of decades, and he's told all kinds of horror stories on the air of all these other inventors who have been told basically, you want to go into another line of work. You don't really want to do that. You know, It'll cut down your, your life expectancy or, or worse. And there's all kinds of examples of inventors, uh, brilliant inventors, who have suffered very bizarre um, – personal injury and up to and including death for pursuing this kind of research. But I've never heard one story, and I track this stuff pretty closely, of someone who simply wanted to take a classic Byfield Brown gravitator, meaning a big solid chunk of uh, electret of a capacitor, uh, maybe weighing 30 pounds, maybe weighing 20 or whatever, put it into a CubeSat, put it into orbit, turn it on, and see what happened. 
So I don't know whether that that you know speculation on your part. I mean, how can anybody threaten anybody these days with social media without it becoming you know front page headlines? Well, I think that the intelligence apparatus of the United States is very sophisticated, and they have been at this for a very long time. And I'm not saying suppression is always at work. Um, there's probably, you know, there may not be many groups that have considered putting very heavy dielectrics in orbit because of the mass um, of, you know, it's expensive to put heavy masses in orbit. Um, that could be part of it. Um, but I believe if the government wants to shut, when I say government, I should say the special access programs that spend way more on security than they actually spend on the research and development budget. If they want to make someone, you know, not do something, they have ways of making it happen because they're experts in that. Well, we're going to find out because that's one of the things we're going to try. We're going to try to put a Byfield Brown device into a CubeSat and aim it somewhere and see what happens. Because, I mean, you understand why this is so critical. Yes, it's very important. Well, describe for the audience why this this one invention that Brown made back, I think, in the 1920s, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe even earlier in the, in the teens, has been sitting there on the shelf, available now for at least a decade by any entrepreneurial private space companies. You know, Elon Musk, are you listening? Because, you know, if anybody could take on these shadowy guys, it would be Musk, Right. Well, he needs to look at this technology. Musk needs to realize that even the most primitive spacecraft that utilize this technology for propulsion would be leaps and bounds um, in performance beyond any system using Newtonian propulsion with a chemical propellant. Um, if you could build <laughs> one of these systems um, that could produce even a modest amount of thrust… Um, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's, let's, let's go back to numbers. What was the thrust-to-weight ratio of Brown's original cumbersome heavy electret slash condensers slash capacitors? Um, his very earliest systems, um, let's you know, I'm, that's just an estimate. If they weighed 20, 30 pounds, they produced a couple ounces of force. But mm -hmm. that was using primitive materials. That was using, um, I think, bulkalite or other uh, materials, rubber, um, that had a low dielectric constant, probably in the single digits. Now we have materials with dielectric constants in the hundreds of thousands. Mm, and um, they're much lighter. Yes. Um, so you could and, take a modern uh, a modern electret, I think that's the technical term for the material of a capacitor. Um, actually, an electret is um, slightly different. Um, an electret is a material that keeps an electric charge naturally. It contains it. It's an analog to a magnet itself. Instead of having magnetic domains, um, an electric keeps a constant um, static electric field. So um, there's a little difference there. Okay. Well, what would you call this self-contained gadget? I'm thinking that was the heart of a reactionless uh, engine, space drive. Well, well, you have the um, you have the metal plates or electrodes on each side, and then you'd have a dielectric material. It, need, it needs it um, needs a name. What what's the name of it? 
Um, well, um, one material um, could be barium titanate. No, um, I, I don't mean the material. I mean what's the gadget's name? Oh, the uh, gravitator. That was what he um, – Thomas Brown called them originally, his okay. gravitators. But, well, all right. But see, no one knows that because it's not – you can't get it at Kmart. You can't yeah. go down to, to, to you know, shop and stop and get a gravitator. You should be able to, but you can't. Yep. <clears throat> so it's really another electronic device pressed into service as this special gadget, which would be a capacitor, right? Yes. Okay, and we can make them big, small, whatever. If you remember, if you if you if you're right that the the original clunky design of Brown was like twenty thirty pounds, and yes. he was getting two ounces out of thrust. Yes. But that's two ounces as long as he has a supply of electricity, right? Absolutely. Which means not going exotic, staying mainstream. If you attach this spacecraft with this gravitator, which will produce a thrust in one direction, when you apply a voltage to both ends, you apply that voltage by means of solar cells and a battery combination, you basically have an unlimited power source attached to an unlimited thrust source, right? Yes. So where can you go with this? Um, with this technology, you could go anywhere in the solar system because um, with a constant thrust, um, you just continue building and building velocity. So um, if you could achieve 1G acceleration, that's um, the speed of one times that of gravity, um, you could you know, go to Mars in less than a week. You could go to the outer solar system you know, in a matter of months. It would accelerate space exploration dramatically, um, and that would just be with the first generation of this device. Mm -hmm. um, if you enhanced it by using, you know, cutting-edge dielectrics, by you know, figuring out the optimal waveforms to apply to it when you pulse it, by um, you know, doing simulations to figure out the optimum geometry of the capacitor, the overall device, mm -hmm. um, you could. Go even faster. This would be perfect for exploration within their solar system. So why hasn't anybody done this? All I can say is it needs to be done. But I go back to my question. Why hasn't Musk done it? Because Musk is I, I, not a dumb person. Musk reads everything. I mean, hell, he's a polymath. He's a you know generalist genius. You know, he made a, a fortune doing other things so he could fund his, his hobbies, his passions, his interests, you cannot tell me that he's never run into or encountered Byfield Brown. So why um, is Musk talking about methane rocket engines when following um, you know, Robert Heinlein, who said classically, famously, once you're in orbit, you're halfway to anywhere? I mean, it may take rockets to get this stuff into space, but once you're in space, even two ounces of thrust, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, will produce velocities that ultimately, in a couple, three years, approach the velocity of light, all without a single atom being ejected in something as clunky and primitive known as a rocket engine. 
So why hasn't somebody done this already? Well, there's also a taboo about all these different topics. Anything that's outside of the mainstream box, there's always skeptical um, naysayers. Um, often, you yeah, know, but that's been true all of all of history. I mean, you know, when you go back and look at all the incredible inventions from, you know, the steam engine to Alexander Graham Bell to Edison and the light bulb, everybody's had opposition. But this is different. See, I'm trying to limb out the background. So the stuff we're talking tonight is not just, you know, the the object of naysayers. It's the object of a directed, multifaceted, unlimited money campaign to never allow this to get to market. Absolutely. You're right. There is such a campaign. This technology has such enormous implications for every aspect of their civilization. They can't let it out because everything would change so radically. The powers that be that really manage their civilization, um, who are basically have more authority, even though they have not been given it by the public, they have more authority than you know politicians, congressmen, senators. Um, they control this world, and this technology would give the power back to the people, back to the ordinary citizens, and they don't want that at all. Um, it would redistribute wealth across the planet, and these families have been accumulating well, – wait wait wait, 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 wait. When you say redistribute, no. It would create buckets, you know, yes. wheelbarrows, uh, yes. semi-trailers of new wealth. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It would spawn all kinds of new industries. We're not talking um, about redistribution. Products. We're talking about the creation of wealth because basically in any system, any economic system, um, you only have three legs to this stool to create everything in civilization that it needs. You've got to have energy. That's one leg. All right. Yeah. You've got to have information to tell the system what the energy is supposed to do. And then the third leg is you've got to have resources. Okay. Now with unlimited energy, because this is what this is. It's not just good for space flight. If I take two bricks, you know, we're going back to the electorate as being two bricks and yes. I put them on the ends of, of a, of a, of a barbell, like, like a T-shaped gadget and I have the center over a pivot so that each condenser, each capacitor, when I energize it, it wants to move in a circle, right? One yes. on one side, one on the other. And the more we keep the current going, the faster that thing's going to spin. Remember, two ounces. Now it's four ounces on each one in opposite direction, so it's going to spin this thing around and around and around and around and around and around until it goes like a, like a blur. If you attach that central shaft to a conventional electrical generator, you've turned your space drive into an electricity generator, which can produce unlimited electricity from the motion of the capacitors going in circle. You're absolutely correct. That's one implication of this technology. 
Um, even just the Byfield Brown effect not going into the other technologies we'll discuss later tonight. There's so many um, utilizations for it. Um, it's we need more people working on this. We need open source people who will share their results and not hoard it to themselves. So I'm I'm very enthusiastic to hear that um, you want to build one of these cube site um, cube satellites with. You know, um, a I, I even I even have an expert who's built I don't know how many of these gadgets in his garage, standing by. So when I get him some funds, and it doesn't take a lot of money. I mean, this can be done for less than a car. You know, can you imagine your private space program for less than a Mercedes or a Lexus or a you know Honda Civic? I mean, we're talking really manageable economics. And manageable uh, management of the, of a team to put this technology together. You can then get lots of launches as piggybacks from these major companies now that are sending much heavier payloads into space, and they've got a payload allotment left over. And rather than just send up you know concrete, they send up useful cubesats with you know built by dedicated amateurs to put stuff into space. But out of all of those amateurs doing all of this stuff, nobody that I'm aware of has ever proposed putting a Byfield Brown engine into orbit, turning it on, and letting the world see what happens. Um, there's a lot of research that can be on, done on the ground before one is launched as well. And none of that seems to be taking place, at least publicly. And that's another mystery because it really should be done. Well, I think in part it's because people think that it's impossible to get to space, so what's the point of doing it on the ground? I mean, back when the M drive was making a big – by the way, the M drive is so clunky and inefficient by comparison. It's like who would who would even care? All all it does is um, is basically say – uh, that this alternate physics is real, but getting a commercial device to really make it manifest, to make it happen, that's, that's, that's something else again. Well, hopefully your project will have success and um, we can demonstrate this effect and prove to the world that it's real and that could have implications beyond just propulsion. Um, with you know electrical generation and also the true physics of how the universe works. Okay. Well, all right. Um, I bet somebody uh, writing in saying that I may be wrong about this. That someone is trying to introduce these technologies to the to the mainstream marketplace. Well, if they are, I haven't seen it, and I've I've seen a lot of announcements over the years, and they just kind of go by the wayside. They don't ever. They they never seem to come to fruition. So let's let's go back to Isaac, your development process. After you looked at Byfield Brown, uh, what happened in your search? Well, well, after I looked at the Byfield Brown effect, I continued to um, look into papers, for example, written by Hal Putoff about zero point energy. Um, I found papers about 
um, the scalar and vector potentials, which is a topic we probably need a few minutes to discuss. I'm not sure if we have the time this moment. Um, and how there's well, a we got a few minutes before the top of the hour, so why don't you uh, try it? Okay. Well, basically, um, Maxwell, who came up with the original equations of electrodynamics, um, according to his math, um, the medium of the you know the universe of space itself. Um, had what was called a scalar potential, which that could be imagined as, for example, if you're underwater under a river, the pressure um, and the weight of the water all around you would be the scalar potential. The vector potential would be the flow of that river um, passing by you. And so he considered the vector potential and scalar potential to be physical realities in addition to the magnetic field and electric field. However, later on, um, after the ether was pretty much by the majority of scientists abandoned, um, Heaviside came around, gutted Maxwell's original equations, and claimed that the scalar and vector potentials were only mathematical abstractions and had no physical reality whatsoever. But there have been many experiments um, that prove um, the vector potential and scalar potentials are indeed real, and they can be observed. And they can have real impacts on matter. One of them is the Maxwell Lodge experiment, um, where you can have a solenoid, um, a long solenoid, and you run um, current through it to create a magnetic field. But around the middle point on the exterior of the solenoid, mathematically, there should be you know, very little to no magnetic field. However, um, the vector potential should be there. And if you put a loop of wire, um, around the exterior near the center point, you will detect an EMF where one should not be produced, um, and that's the vector potential inducing that EMF. So the vector potential is real, and I have read many papers about it. I think that is one of the major facts the powers that be, these special access programs, are hiding from us because um, if we don't even accept the fundamental substrate of the universe is having physical reality. How can we develop anything? How can we understand how UFOs propel themselves? How um, can we understand the force of gravity? We can't unless we start with the basics and admit that Maxwell was correct in that the scalar and vector potentials had physical reality. Okay. Um, I think that you know the the kind of sidebar story on Heaviside, who uh, among other things became a name when it had to do with the ionosphere. That's why it's called, in certain circles, the Heaviside layer, the electrified plasma overhead that you know bounces radio waves uh, around the world, shortwave radio, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, not only did he wind up editing, I think this was after Maxwell had died. Am I correct on that? Yes, it was after Maxwell was. You know, so he couldn't, he couldn't, uh, you know, object. Not only did he cut down the twenty quaternion equations to four, uh, and I think he translated them into non-quaternions, but many, many years later, after he'd made a big, you know, reputation attacking uh, Maxwell's multi-dimensional ideas beyond EM theory for the twenty quaternions. Um, someone apparently bought his house or flat or whatever there in London, and they were doing something 
looking under floorboards. Why would anybody buying a house do that? And they found in a little box, a little you know tin tin box, um, all of of uh, Maxwell's original equations in Heaviside's work. That's fascinating, isn't it? That up. Yep, the cover up was uncovered. So, anyway, um, we're we're coming up to the top of the hour here. Uh, when we come back, we're gonna you know talk about how you went from Byfield Brown and these other inventors looking at basic Maxwell stuff to uh, the magic name of the night, uh, Kenneth Shoulders, and that is a really fascinating story. But we will pick it up on the other side. Uh, what was I doing there? I was hitting the wrong pot. That's really not a good idea. My guest this morning is Isaac Newton. No, not really. But that's the name that uh, he's going by. And we're talking about unusual and exotic technologies. The technologies which, in fact, will uh, wind up changing, if not saving, the world. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.